following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. My name is Jed. I'm the associate pastor here. Our senior pastor, Steve Clark, will be back soon. But if you are visiting with us today, I just want to say welcome again. Um, be happy to answer any questions for you after the service. And I just want to give a special welcome to all the friends and family who are here for Bryant and Christina's wedding. Welcome. Some of you have come a long way. Someone is actually here from Thailand. A few folks are here from Thailand, I think, this morning. So, um, welcome. Let me pray. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel that you are God in this church. Let your words go forth. Let all that I do, let all that I speak, be according to your word. I pray, Lord, that you would send forth your word, that you would speak into our hearts, and that as you speak through your word, that each and every one of us would know that you, O Lord, are God. And that you have turned our hearts back to you. Would you come with fire, burn away the dross of our hearts? Will you show us where we are holding on to ourselves? Or we are defining reality according to our own terms and not according to yours. Show us where we are resisting. Trying to go our own way. Will you show us where we're resisting and just disobeying you? And would you show us the massive blessing that we are losing out on in our resistance? Would you reveal yourself this morning? Reveal yourself as just who you are, as the great God, our Creator, our Creator whom we should remember, whom we should obey, and from whom we should expect massive blessing. Show yourself, I pray. Amen. Well, one more time, we are back in the book of Philemon this morning. Philemon is tucked away between the books of Titus and Hebrews in your Bible. And once again this morning, I'm going to read the entire letter. It's a short one. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, 
to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. Especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, as so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The word of the Lord. What if I asked you a question, this question, what is God up to in the church? What's he up to? What would you say? Well, perhaps you would say he is glorifying himself. And you would be right. Very good. Uh, or making his children more mature to look more like Jesus. Again, yes, exactly. Or you might say, to reach a lost world with the good news of Jesus Christ. Again, yes, exactly. So far, so good. But now I ask, well, how does he do that? How exactly does he accomplish this? What does that look like? Then our answers probably become more diffuse. They differ a bit. How does he accomplish his purposes of, say, maturing believers? Well, we need more Bible studies. We need, we need Bible studies. We need Bible studies for men, and we need separate Bible studies for women. Uh, we need Sunday schools. We need discipleship programs. And I would say, okay, good, yes, we, but we have all those. Is that it? 
Is that really what God is up to? Is that the end? And I think it's, it's right here where we start to decouple our train from God's engine as we go down the track. I say decouple because we can become content in what we are doing for God in His church. We can become so busy doing good things, loving the saints, preaching the word, teaching, organizing, visiting, or serving, that we can find ourselves disconnected from the real power of the gospel, the real power that changes real people, the power that shows up and pops and really displays Christ in his church. We can become so focused on all our doings that our eyes never never look up to a grander reality, one that's that's further down the tracks. In a place that's beyond Sunday school, that's beyond serving in a program. Maybe even beyond this Sunday service. This grander reality, in some sense, must be experienced to be fully understood. Um, at times today, I'm, I'm going to try to touch on it and, and use words to, to communicate it to you. But I, but I pray that God himself would come down today and give you a, a taste of this, this further on country, this, this higher country. And that as you get a taste of it, that you will go and seek it out for yourself. The trip there sometimes, though, is bitter. It can be bittersweet and difficult. It is not easy. It is a place that only the humble can enter. But those that do enter it find God waiting there. And waiting there with with blessing that I, I struggle to put into words. But wonderful, clear, precious blessing. It's a blessing that Jonathan Edwards described as really the most refined, inward, and exquisite delights in the world. (laughs) So how do we get there? You make it sound so ethereal, Jed. It's difficult to reach. In some ways it's difficult, but it's not ethereal. It's quite earthy. It is the actual calling of God upon every Christian here today to go and find this country, to go and seek it out, to seek God and seek His reward, to actually expect it by faith. The path does not involve a lonely trail to some solitary mountain peak. Quite the contrary, this path to this higher country will probably run through A person you're sitting next to today, or someone else in this room, maybe someone outside this room. God has constructed his church in a in a breathtaking way so that his his blessing comes to us through other Christians. And those blessings bring with them, though, responsibility. And as we fulfill and obey these responsibilities, we bring blessing to other people. And as other people receive blessing through us, it comes with it responsibilities. And they fulfill and obey these responsibilities that came from that blessing, and then they... The blessing moves on. God has connected every one of His children to the others in this this dual reality of blessing and responsibility. 
They go together always in the church. Each one of us, each one of our relationships has embedded in it and constructed by God in terms of blessing and responsibility. That's one of the massive contributions that this book of Philemon makes to the entire body of Scripture. So, what's this blessing and what's this responsibility? We can simply put it this way for now. The blessing is to give God, or excuse me, the blessing is to get God and the responsibility is to give God. To receive God and to give God. God is the greatest thing, period. There is no other one or thing like Him. To get God is to get real unending blessing. Everything else, every, every pleasurable thing in this life at best is only a pointer to the real source of unending total pleasure and blessing. And when God blesses, He transforms. He changes from the inside out. God's love is so so infinite that it, that it strips away our thoughts of obeying Him out of empty compulsion any longer. It, it, it frees us in, a, in an, a, a happy openness to trust Him and to obey Him no matter where it leads us. It causes us to be joyful risk-takers to obey Him out of love because we know that with the responsibilities that he puts on us, oh, he lavishes us with blessing. He is just that kind of God. So we no longer look at obedience as God's means to be a killjoy. But obedience becomes our, our way of walking further down that path to that, that far-off country, that precious country. Obedience increasingly takes on a new character that, that even in the most trying of times, it carries with it these seeds of expectation of hope and blessing. And all of this, God works out inside of our fellowship, inside of our fellowship with each other. That's the, that's the reactor upon which God, God powers all of this, this transformation. Just as it did in the the triangle, this, this reactor between Paul and Philemon and Onesimus. In this letter, Paul is appealing to Philemon for Onesimus, Philemon's slave who's run away. Up through verse 16, we've been looking at how Paul lays the groundwork for his appeal. But today we come to the point, we come to the main thrust of Paul's appeal in verses 17 through 21. And as we look at these verses, we, we will see how each person responds to the situation. Each person will be called to remember how God has put them in relationship in Christ. And from that reality, they will discern certain responsibilities that they have to the other two. And as they fulfill those responsibilities, we will also see the blessing that God brings in that obedience. Well, all of this points and drives home this, this major theme, and we'll see this theme in each, each one of these three brothers today. The theme is this, and I'll repeat this. We vividly display Christ and receive the blessing of Christ as we discern our mutual fellowship in Christ 
and respond with obedience to Christ. I'll say that again. We vividly display Christ and receive the blessing of Christ as we discern our mutual fellowship in Christ and respond with obedience to Christ. We will see today how this plays out with each man, discerning what this this fellowship is, responding in obedience and receiving blessing. To, to put another another way, each man each man remembers God. Each man in response gives God. And each man gets God. Well, as we look at this today, there'll be three words that that will rise to the surface, three words to kind of hang our thinking on as we walk through the end of the letter. And as we see how each man responds to this this fellowship that they have in Christ, three words will come to the surface. Reconcile, receive, and return. Reconcile, receive, and return. We're all going to find ourselves, if we don't right now, just this moment, at one corner of this triangle. Each one of us at some point is going to be the offender, the sinner. We are sinners. Each one of us is going to be sinned against. And at some point, each one of us is going to find ourselves as the third party observing sin against sin or sin against brother or sister. And in each corner, there are certain responsibilities based on our fellowship that we have in Christ. And that's what we're going to look at today. How did each man respond to their fellowship in Christ in this this situation? Well, let's first look at Paul. Paul the reconciler. Paul was the third party here. And Paul's obedient response was to reconcile. So how did Paul discern their partnership? We've, We've looked at this quite a bit, but we'll just briefly review it. We need to look back and see how he reads the situation, how he looks at these two brothers. Paul's primary concern in verses 8 and 9 is that the love of Christ be displayed in the church above everything else. Also, as he looks at Onesimus, he sees a new man. He is no longer the old, useless Onesimus. Onesimus means useful. And he sees now a man who has been transformed from the inside out by the grace of God. And he sees a useful man, a transformed man, a new man. But it is also important, in verse 14, that Philemon act towards Onesimus out of a heartfelt obedience of God, to God, out of a free response to the truth of their new relationship. Then in verse 15, Paul, Paul sees this situation, he sees the sin, and he, he remembers that this new relationship is being sovereignly worked out by God. God is sovereignly transforming Onesimus' sin. Onesimus probably not only fled from his master, but stole a great deal of money to fund his trip. But Paul looks out and sees God sovereignly transforming this sin into something for Christ's glory for the good of his people. That's the reality that Paul is focusing on first. Not only that, therefore Onesimus is now Philemon's beloved brother, he says in verse 16, whether Philemon realizes it yet or not. It's already true. But he is still his slave. 
This new relationship transcends any previous relationship they have. Paul says in verse 16 that Onesimus is now more than a slave. And yet there is still the reality of what Onesimus did as a slave, as his old man, that needs to be dealt with. Both are true. He is more than a slave, but the sin needs to be dealt with. But as the phrase, in the flesh, signifies, Onesimus is really also now a new man, transformed by grace. And all of this has happened, as verse 16 says at the end, in the Lord. They are now united in Christ, in the Lord. That is the reality that must take first priority. They are united in the Lord. Paul sees this reality and he sees it clearly. And for each one of us, when we are in this third position, we must, by God's grace, see this reality. We must remember this reality. It is imperative that when we find this Find ourselves in this position, we must first remind ourselves of the gospel realities of the relationships that are present. We must not let the sin realities take first priority, but we, we often do that. We often first think, okay, this person sinned against this person. This person is right, this person is wrong. Okay, that's how, that's how we, we initially think about things, but Paul doesn't do that. Paul doesn't hone in on whether or not Onesimus actually did sin. His first priority is their new relationship in Christ. So when we find ourselves in this position, we too must remind ourselves of what the reality is, what the reality is of our fellowship in Christ. And if we let God be first, as we will see today, massive blessings will follow. If we let how God sees the situation be first, if we don't define it for ourselves but submit to how God sees their relationship. This, in a very real sense, is giving God to the other two people. Think about it. If God, what would would it be like if God only focused on our sin reality? Who could stand? But this is how God deals with his children. He doesn't first look at the reality of our sin, but he looks at the reality of what Christ did on the cross for each one of us. That's the reality that he sees us through. That's the lens that he views us through. And so we bring God when we see two people in conflict and we, we look at them and we see the situation the same way God does. His two brothers are sisters redeemed by grace. Sin is real and there are consequences. But God in his mercy looks first at the cross of his son, then to us. But sin must also be dealt with, and this leads us into how Paul obeys the implications of these realities. How does Paul obey here? How does Paul respond in obedience to God based on these realities? Paul would love to keep Onesimus. He's become tremendously helpful to him. But he doesn't. He's become very dear to him. He's like a son to him. But he gives him up. Sends him out. Not sure himself how it will all turn out. Paul doesn't know how it will all end up with Philemon. But he calls upon Onesimus to return and confess. But he does it in a wise way. Paul protects him with wisdom. He guards Onesimus and how he returns to Philemon. He doesn't do this recklessly. But he does call him to return and to confess. 
This letter alone will serve as a massive protection to Onesimus. He doesn't just throw him to the wolves. But above everything else, reconciliation in the body must occur. But not only that, he reminds the other two participants of their new reality. If, if we find ourselves in this position, we must emulate Paul here. It is not enough for us just to see the theological realities, but we must take the risk of stepping into the situation and reminding the other two parties of what the realities are between them. Did this person sin against you? Yes. But we must be able to remind him of how God sees that. That's risky. And it doesn't always turn out well. But it is how we obey in this situation if we find ourselves to be this third party. But it is how Paul does this that makes this letter a master work of ancient letters. In short, to both parties, Paul demonstrates the gospel realities. He demonstrates it through persuasion. He doesn't compel him. He doesn't lay down the law to the two of them. He doesn't choose sides and choose winners and losers. But he persuades. He persuades. And by persuading, he demonstrates the gospel realities. And we need to see what this looks like here. He's willing to give up his own comfort, his very heart, he says in verse 12, for the sake of the love of Christ being displayed. But more than that, he, he leaves room for Philemon's free response, as we said in verse 14. He even expresses confidence that Philemon's response will exceed what Paul is asking for. Verse 21. Free response to what? Well, Paul finally reveals his command to Philemon in verse 17. He says, Receive Onesimus as you, Philemon, would receive me. Because of Christ... We three are eternal equals. Receive him as you would receive me. Here we see Paul inserting himself in the situation to demonstrate the gospel realities. This is vital. This is vital for us to learn and to pray to God for the grace to be able to do. What do I mean by that? Well, every one of us is dead to rights before God because of our sin. But as we said, there is another blessed reality for every one of us who have trusted in Christ. For Christ himself is continually asking the Father for each one of us who have believed, Father, receive this one as you have received me. Don't look at his sin. Look at my work for him on the cross. And the Father eagerly, joyfully, happily says, yes, I will do that. I will receive him as I will receive you, my beloved son. And so somehow, somehow Paul persuades in his persuasion of Philemon, he reminds him of the gospel realities. He persuades him to give God to Onesimus, to display God. Display God, receive Onesimus as you would receive me. Receive Onesimus as God has received you, Philemon. This demonstration continues in verse 18. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. And then I, I picture Paul telling his scribe, give me that thing. And he takes the writing instrument and starts writing himself in verse 19. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it 
to say nothing of your own owing me, even your own self. Now, without conceding that Onesimus actually did steal something, Paul literally creates and signs his own promissory note to pay back what was probably a significant sum that Onesimus stole. This is not just rhetoric. Paul is taking a risk to gently demonstrate another gospel reality to Philemon. One that all of us must must remember if we are to forgive. Again, for every believer, there is still this issue of the sins that we commit. And God is perfectly just. So how is God perfectly just to us, or perfectly just and yet merciful to us? How does one not do violence to the other? For every sin, after all, God the King is the one most offended. So how does he do that? And stay true to himself. For every believer, for every sin, God the Son says to God the Father, Father, if this one owes you anything, charge it to me. Charge it to my cross. I will pay for it with my own hands. And God the Father joyfully, with great pleasure, says, Yes, I will charge it to you. Praise his name. I will pay for it with the nails in my own hands, with my body, with my cross. He then demonstrates to Philemon one more reality in that last phrase. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. This, this would be manipulation <laughs> if, it, if it weren't actually true. <laughs> and if it didn't point to a greater reality that everyone must remember in order to forgive. He's gently making a comparison between what Onesimus owes Philemon and what Philemon was forgiven of by God. Again, Paul's inserting himself to demonstrate a larger reality. Each one of us, if we are to truly forgive from the heart, as Jesus himself commands us in Matthew 18, we must do this comparison. We must compare, what has this other person done to me? And how heavy is that in relationship to the heaviness of my infinite sin to an infinitely holy God? And when we truly do that comparison, it's, boy, it's humbling. (laughs) But humility is exactly what we need in that moment to truly forgive. The only way we forgive is by doing this comparison and remembering what we have been forgiven of by an infinitely merciful God. Paul is saying, by layman, do this comparison. But I'm going to use myself as a visible, physical example to you. I'm not manipulating you. I'm being a good friend to you. I'm placing myself in the middle of this uncomfortable situation so that you can see the gospel reality, so that I might be useful to you in this. Boy, we need this. We need good friends. And a good friend is is someone who doesn't just empathize. A good friend in Christ is one who is willing to step up and remind us of the truth that we need to lean on to obey God, even when it is terribly difficult to obey. That's a good friend. A good friend in Christ. 
I have to ask you today, have you, have you decoupled yourself from the gospel? Have, have you forgotten the, the infinite blessing that God has lavished upon you in his grace? Have you forgotten how, how infinite was your offense to him and how infinite, how equally infinite was his love to you? Or do you use bad math? How infinitely infinite was, was his love to you? How his love did something that transcends time and space and in the face of my infinite offense to him became infinite upon infinity. Have we forgotten this? Because if we have, we will find ourselves seeking as our end of all things doing programs. And we will seek to display God by doing things and stuff. And it's, that's, that's not bad. I'm just saying there's something further on down the tracks. That God wants to take us and use us as a reactor to display His glory. And He does that by, by us remembering the gospel and remembering who we are in the gospel and acting on it. And obeying Him in it. But you know what? You and I, we need people to come alongside us. I need that. I need you to be that to me. I need you to demonstrate the gospel to me and to wake me up sometimes and to say, oh, yes, yes, yes. We need people to come alongside us and love us such that we say, my goodness, if he or she loves me like that, how much more must God love me? Oh, wait a second. Oh, right. The cross. Yes, he does love me like that. Oh, yeah. I need that. You need that. I need people to demonstrate this. But in all of this, there was also a blessing for Paul. In verse 20, he says that he wants some benefit from Philemon in this. Philemon, you, you owe me your very self, but I, so I, just, I just want a little benefit from you. I want my, my heart to be refreshed. Again, he's, he's inserting himself in to demonstrate a larger reality that God wants some benefit from us. It's not a quid pro quo. He just wants his son to be displayed, to be glorified, and he wants his saints' hearts to be refreshed by his grace being displayed. That's all Paul wants. Refresh my heart. Display the grace of God in a way that will refresh my heart. Right, Laman? I, I long for this refreshment myself. This, since Annie and the kids and I have come here, this church has been a massive blessing to us. So don't get me wrong. We have felt ourselves at home. We have received grandmothers and grandfathers to our children. We've received aunts and uncles. We've received a blessed family in Christ. So don't get me wrong. But I long for this refreshment. I, I long for the gospel that we preach would go forth that the worst sinners would be saved. And that as they come into our body, that they would really see it in our eyes, that they really are children of the living God, that they are no longer identified by their old life, but they are identified by the love of a king that has lavished his grace upon them, and that they would see it in us. I long to be refreshed in that way.
And I long to see that within us. I long to see that conflict, when it arises, to be transformed into, into moments of God's glory. Where the grace that He showed me would be displayed between us. Oh, that's when it pops. That's when His glory is displayed. We need to get close enough for this to happen. I think sometimes we don't want to get close because we know we're using good theology and just not, we're not using whole theology. But we're right when we think to ourselves, people are sinners. So I don't want to get close. The first part is right. But the fact of the matter is, God uses these interactions, these intersections of sin to be transformed into eruptions of His glory. And so we need to get close. We need to take seriously our responsibilities to each other. For some of us, this may mean membership, frankly, pursuing church membership and digging in and deciding this is my family. I'm going to dig in for His glory. For others of us, it might mean joining a gospel community, getting close that way and saying, I'm going to dig in. These are my people in Christ. We need people to gently demonstrate to others the gospel's implications on their relationships with each other. And you too might need to make some gutsy calls along the way, as Paul did. The gospel frees you to do that, and God's grace enables you to do that. And along the way, you will receive this refreshing, as you have a front row seat to God's glory being displayed through reconciliation. You will find yourself maturing and loving God and thirsting for Him even more as you see Him reconciling people. We need to get close enough to see this happen. We need to remember God and give God and get God. Well, just like Philemon, we all need friends whom God will use to reconcile. Well, Philemon... Never expected to see Onesimus again, I don't think. Or if he did, it would have been just in the hands of a bounty hunter. But here he is in Philemon's courtyard, letters being read, and there's Onesimus, humble, exposed, and vulnerable, and silent. Well, how was Philemon to discern their new reality? What was he to do with Philemon? The beginning of verse 17 is an excellent summary of this. They are both now united in Christ. And this is massive. In short, Philemon is to think this way, that what Christ has done to unite them now takes priority over what Onesimus did to divide them. I'll say that again. What Christ did to unite them takes priority over what Onesimus did to divide them. There is now no difference between Onesimus and Paul in God's eyes, nor is there any difference between Onesimus and Philemon in God's eyes. They all share equally in Christ. So what's the implications of this? How is Philemon to obey? Well, Paul only says, receive him as you would receive me. But what's it supposed to look like? Again, Paul leaves it open so that the implications of their relationship would drive his actions. As we've already seen, Philemon must compare which one is heavier. But not only that, he must remember how God has received him 
in the face of all of his sin. He must remember, in short, the gospel. Then he must forgive. And the word forgive is never mentioned in this letter, only received, but that is undoubtedly the implication here. There is much to say about this. There's a world to learn on the subject of forgiveness. But for now, let me just give two sides to it, the negative and the positive aspects of it. The negative is this, just a a promise to not bring it up again, not to myself, not to you, and not to everybody else. It's just a promise not to bring it up again. But the positive side of this is vital and required. Not only is it a promise not to do something, but we are called by how God has treated us to search out that person and to run to them, to actively love them in response. Forgiveness involves the active loving of the sinner because that is exactly how God has treated us. If we stand in bitterness, crying unfair like the good son in the parable of the prodigal son, we just don't get it. We just don't get it. Because we've forgotten how our father, like the father in that parable, picked up his his clothing and ran to meet the son as he was approaching. We forget how God has loved us in the face of our sin and our rebellion of him. If we forget that, you know what? We're not just forgetting it. We're despising His grace to us. This is, this is vital stuff. This is not a neutral moment. Philemon cannot receive Onesimus without actively loving him with the love of Christ. And I praise God that God did not treat us that way. That God did not just forgive us, but then kind of stay aloof and stay far off. That God, God didn't say, you know what? You're, You're not guilty, uh, or you're still guilty, but I'm just not going to send you to jail. So, get out of my sight. Oh, God. God searched us out. And God welcomed us like that father in the parable. God's infinite love to Philemon is meant to propel him in love towards Onesimus. And not only that, but to receive this other person is to to lavish upon them all the privileges of membership, all the privileges of partnership. Onesimus, no, you, you don't wait on tables today. You sit and you eat with us, brother. You sit at the head of the table, brother. No, 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 you talk. You tell us your story. Onesimus, brother, have a seat. Eat with us. Onesimus, see it in my eyes. I love you. Why? Because Christ has loved me. I'm just giving you a glimpse of it. I'm just giving you a grain of sand of it. And the blessings, the blessings for Philemon's obedience are immense here. He gains a beloved brother and one useful to gospel work. But but more importantly, and this is massive, don't miss this. From the moment the letter is finished being read aloud, Philemon has the opportunity to, to display the love and the glory of Christ in a way that he never otherwise would in a thousand programs. 
He has the opportunity to, to, to glorify God and to really show in an earthy, real way God's love. He may never get this chance for the rest of his life. This may be the moment for Philemon that God has ordained to glorify himself and Philemon's life. This may be it. And through his obedience, Philemon will mature. His faith will be confirmed and enlarged through all of it. And there will be other blessings down the path that he can't see right now. If he will only obey. Well, if we understand our new fellowship in Christ, then we will seek to reconcile. We will receive, and lastly, we will return. The, the stakes are high for Onesimus here, he, because he's actually committed two capital crimes. It was a capital crime to run from your master if you were a slave in those days. Secondly, it was a capital offense to steal. So it would have been very reasonable for Philemon to simply have him executed if Philemon were anyone else. Or if Philemon was merciful, the merciful response in those days would have been branding on the forehead. And he would have been liable to receive two brands. One for being a fugitive, a big F. And then another one, CF, which would stand for beware thief. So, Philemon is exercising massive faith here to obey. Massive faith. But that's because there is a reality that takes precedence even over life and death. It is worth risking in Onesimus' mind. It's worth it to, to risk it, to obey God in this. God had other plans for Onesimus, though. Onesimus was saved at the hands of Paul. And as he obeys, he must remember which reality takes the greatest priority. There are these deadly options which face him as he returns to Philemon. The risks will be great. But the reality of their new relationship in Christ transcends even this. Onesimus is free. Paul can't tell him what to do. He could keep running if he wants. But he's a new man. And he must be reconciled with Philemon. And so he returns to confess his sin and to deal with it. He is now in a new fellowship, a comradeship, if you will, in Christ with Philemon. That takes precedence. So he returns. Great faith. But this is exactly the kind of thing that Paul described as the whole point of his ministry at the beginning of the book of Romans. There in chapter 1, he says, my, the whole point of my existence now is to bring about the obedience of faith. This is what Paul, this, this was the point of Paul's ministry. The point of Paul's ministry was not to bring about great programs. And, and great doings. Although that could be, God can bless that. What Paul wanted was to see the obedience of faith and it displays itself so clearly in Onesimus, in his returning to Philemon, in taking the risk to confess his sin 
and trusting God with the consequences of confessing his sin. For many of us, this could be the the logjam in our maturity. We may have sins in our past, in our far back past or in our recent past, that we have yet to confess to the one we've wronged. God says, I want to mature you. I want to bless you. But you must deal with this relationship. This fellowship in Christ must be dealt with first. Then I will bless you. You must obey here. Then I will bless you. These are the kinds of steps of faith that lead to maturity. But it takes trusting in Christ. It takes trusting in Christ to to step out and confess, not knowing what the consequences of my confession will be. Oh, it's it's terribly difficult for a husband to confess his secret sin to his wife or for a wife to confess her long past sin to him. It's scary to confess one's dishonesty to one's boss. But the fellowship must be considered first. And we must... Trust God with the consequences of that confession, of that obedience. And that's exactly what Onesimus does here. And there is blessing. There is massive blessing for Onesimus on the other side of his obedience. Onesimus gets God when, upon obeying God and returning... He hears those freeing words come out of Philemon's mouth. I forgive you. Did Onesimus know that he was forgiven before? I mean, surely that was part of Paul's gospel, right? Did he? I think yes and no. I think he did. But when he saw it in flesh and blood, when he heard Philemon say, I forgive you, it was as though... It really was true. Now it is real. Now I can see it and taste it and feel it. It is true. Philemon got, or excuse me, Onesimus got God in that moment. We need this. We need this from each other. Yes, First John says that God is faithful and just to forgive us of, of all sin when we confess our sin. To, con- to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yes, that is true. And yet it is really true when we see the other brothers say, Brother, you are forgiven. You know that, right? We say, yeah, I, I knew it, but just seeing it come out of your mouth, I, yeah, now I know it. We need this. Oh, do we need it? In a very real sense... Onesimus will only know God more deeply on the other side of his confession, on the other side of his seeking to be reconciled with Philemon. And it's probably in part because Philemon and the church will display God to him in a way that he never otherwise would see it. This will not be the only way Onesimus is blessed by his obedience. God being God will open his floodgates to him. About 50 years after this letter was written, 
an early church father named Ignatius was on his way to be executed in Rome. And he wrote farewell letters to several churches in Asia Minor, including one to the church in Ephesus. Can you guess who it was addressed to? Onesimus. It was addressed to Bishop Onesimus. <laughs> Bishop Onesimus. He had become a trophy of God's grace in the church. The church had evidently come around him and welcomed him with open arms, not based on what he had done, but by who he was in Christ. And his new usefulness in Christ had grown and matured. And he had become the leader of the elders of the church in a neighboring city. The runaway slave who had risked everything to obey God and be reconciled with his brother Philemon became a gleaming jewel of God's grace. That is exactly what God is in the business of doing. That is just God being God. Well, Paul longs in verse 22 to come and spend time in person with his good friend. He, he probably never did. Um, he would be beheaded for his faith. Obedient for the sake of an eternal blessing. So would Onesimus. Onesimus too would be beheaded for his faith. So would Philemon. Church history tells us. And Epaphras and Aristarchus. Luke would write a gospel and Mark would serve faithfully he himself being restored by Paul's own forgiveness at one point. All these men would, rem would remain faithful. They would remain faithful by remembering all of the good that is in us for the sake of Christ. All of them and their deaths would display the supreme worth of Christ. Christ would be displayed in his church. Imagine Philemon could go to the gallows or the, the execution block that day looking back over his life saying to himself, if nothing else, though it were difficult, though it was very hard, I know you were glorified on that day, Lord, to Onesimus. I know you were shown. I know you were. All of them would obey to the very end. All except Demas. Paul would elsewhere say that Demas deserted him. He deserted their fellowship in Christ out of a love for this world. This kind of love will begin to show itself when we begin to define our relationships our way, not God's way. It'll show itself when we start forgetting the gospel. When we start dictating our own terms in relationships. It will show itself in, in a hardness of heart that refuses to obey the gospel. Especially in forgiveness. And it will show itself in a growing distance from people. And a refusal to reconcile and to return. Yesterday I took part in a funeral. Today, Lord willing, I'll take part in a wedding. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, 
somewhere in our lives in between, God wants a return. God wants some benefit from you. Will you display the love of his son? Will you? I pray that you will. I pray that God would give you grace to be a person who reconciles, who receives, and who returns. Let's pray. God of all blessings, God of all good, thank you for your son, Jesus. I stand up here today and I see so much of myself in Philemon and Onesimus. I'm just some guy that you picked out of his own sin and rebellion. I didn't earn a bit of it. You just did it. You just did it because you wanted to. And now I get to stand up here and, and talk about your grace, your, your infinite love. So I just I ask you for your mercy and I thank you for your grace. I pray that it would be your word that would resonate with us today. That it would be your word that would stick with us. That your word would be branded upon our hearts. That you would be glorified in us. For the sake of you, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.